<laughs> there, am I on now? I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. We've been talking about the importance of unity. It was something that God deemed very necessary, very important in the church. And last week, we learned that unity, um, it, it doesn't mean that we all have to agree. We can come to the point where we agree to disagree. We also said that um, having unity is going to require a lot of work. But it's very important. And a very important part of unity is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about acceptance. Acceptance in the body of Christ. I'm sure that sometime, somewhere along your life, you've watched a show called Cheers. You know, that place where everybody knows your name. Or maybe it was Friends where you heard someone say, I'll be there for you. Well, sadly, those shows are just pretend. Yeah, they're, they're just some script that they all read together and um, filmed on a soundstage somewhere. But people love those shows. They tuned into them by the millions because people desperately want to be a part of that kind of community. They see something in those characters and their relationships with one another that, that they want for themselves. But it's not real. It can be real. There is a place where that kind of community can and does exist. That place is called the church. Right here where we are today. That's the kind of place that the church should be. It's kind of the place that the church can be. It's the kind of place that the Lord Jesus Christ intended his church to be. The most powerful argument for the truth of the gospel is not found in sophisticated um, theological discussions and statements. It's not even seen in good works. The most powerful argument for the truth of the gospel is our, our love for one another, loving one another. That's what Jesus said would distinguish us from all others. He said, if we love one another, John chapter um, 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? That you have love one for another. Jesus doesn't say that we're to love those that agree with us. We're to love one another, respect one another. We're to get along with one another. How do we do that, you ask? Well, I'm thankful that you asked that question because that's what I'm going to talk about today. How do we do that? How do we have unity? Listen to, to the first part of this text that uh, we find in Colossians chapter 3. Um, he tells us there to put on. That means it, it's, it's a work. We talked about that. Unity is a work. Getting along together is going to be a work. Acceptance is going to take work. So he said put on. And he calls us God's chosen, holy and beloved. That's who we are. He said, put on compassion. We have to be compassionate toward one another. We're to put on kindness. That's a big talk in our day-to-day. -day. We see T-shirts, posters, all that kind of stuff about be kind. If there's anything you can do, you can be kind. Humility is the next thing. Be humble. Don't think too highly of yourself as you ought because you ain't all that. I got all my English teachers awake now. Um, meekness is not weakness. 
It's just being able to listen to somebody, let them say what they want to say. And patience. We have to be patient with each other. And he tells us to bear with one another. If another has a complaint against you, he tells us to forgive. All of these things. And, and then he, he brings it to an end in the next verse. And he says that we are to love. Put on love. These are the things that need to take place in the church. We need to have all of these things. So I want to invite you to stand with me this morning and read those three verses with me. I mean, in unison, out loud, we're going to read beginning at verse 12. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you believe that, say amen. 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 You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let me tell you about Phil. Phil was a college student in a college town. And uh, it was back in the day when, when guys wore their hair long and wild and crazy. He had t-shirts so, worn so thin they had holes in them. He had uh, blue jeans, never wore shoes, even when he went to class. Well, across the street from that college was a church. And I'll tell you this about Phil. Phil became a Christian in this church. But the first day that he went there, he decided he was going to walk across the campus and go to the, camp, the, the church right across the street. And as he walked in, the music was still playing, and here he is wearing his jeans, his wild hair, his, his, his uh, holy T-shirts, and, and no shoes. And he's walking down the center aisle, and the place is packed. As he's walking, you know, you could just feel the tension rise as the people noticed Phil coming in. And uh, it, it's like women would grab their purse and hold it as they watched him go, well, you know, that kind of thing, how, how people will do. And, and the closer he got to the pulpit, he realized there's no seat, so he came and he sat down on the carpet right here at the front. Well, I got to tell you, the whole church was wondering what is going to happen. The, the music got done and everybody sat down except for one deacon, about an 80-year-old, very elegant, silver-haired Deacon, three-piece suit. He had a pocket watch. I tell you, this was way back. And uh, a godly man, a godly man, very dignified. And he starts walking down that same center aisle toward Phil. And all the church is thinking, well, praise God we got a man like that who's going to let this kid know how things are done. He's going to go over there and set him straight. And, and the deacon just keeps walking down. The pastor can't even get up because, uh, you know, he can't get up to preach yet until... The deacon does what he has to do. And this 80-some-year-old deacon gets to where Phil is, and with great effort, he sat down next to him. Mm. The whole church is in utter silence. The minister, he gains control of himself, and he says, What I'm about to preach, you'll not remember. But what you've just witnessed, you'll never forget. You know what it was called? Acceptance. That 80-some-year-old deacon accepted that young man. We all crave acceptance. We all need it. We desire it. But we're not so quick to give it. 
Each of us wants people who will care about us. People who will stand with us in bad times. We, we want people who will accept us, not criticize us, not judge us. I want that, don't you? Am I, am I right? We want that kind of an experience. People are looking for acceptance. A place where they are free to make mistakes, to learn from their mistakes, to move on from their mistakes. And that's the kind of place the church should be. It's the kind of place that Christ intended the church to be. If we are going to truly become a New Testament church, we have to be, learn to be accepting of one another. Is this church, that kind of church, where discouraged, brokenhearted people can find strength, can find healing, where confused people can find answers and help and guidance, where people who are weighed down with their sin can find forgiveness and relief? When a church becomes that kind of church, it's going to be known as a church that loves one another. Where love is flowing in that congregation abundantly. People will see that something is different down at that old church on Main Street. And we don't mean just the new windows. It, it, there's something going on there. There's people that care about people. There are people that love people. They will see that it's not just a religion, it's not just a doctrine, it's not just an obligation that the people are gathering there. They gather there because it is a place where they find acceptance, comfort, care. We need to reach out into our community and let them know that, that we are a people that love because they're gonna see one day, this church is not about a program. It's not about a class. This, this church is about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's about the Christ who loved us. Therefore, we love others. It's a church that forgives others because we serve a Christ who forgave us. That text I quoted from John chapter 13 where Jesus was talking about being witnesses to this world, he said, this is a new commandment that I give you. Love one another. It's not an option. It's a command. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And it's this that all men will know, that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Back in the days of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of the 1800s, uh, he was preaching in his church in Chicago and a partially intoxicated man came in and sat down and, and uh, Moody's up there preaching. He gives the invitation at the end of the message. Moody goes to the back of the church and he greets the people and everybody left except for that man. He was just sitting in his seat sobbing and Mr. Moody went over to him and put his arm around him and and he spoke to him, he said, is there something I can do for you? What was it in my message that has touched your heart? This man said, oh, Mr. Moody, I didn't hear a word you said. It was that banner that was over the pulpit that said, God is love. 
And he asked me, he said, Mr. Moody, is God really a God of love? And Mr. Moody sat there with him for so, a long time and led that man to Jesus. Beloved, God is love. All of his ways are acts of love. Everything that we see him doing in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is him showing us how much he loves us. Because God is love. Our job here in his church is to love each other unconditionally, just like God loved us. The most powerful argument for the gospel is not the eloquence of our preacher, although he very certainly is. You weren't supposed to laugh at that. It was supposed to be amen. It's not the beautiful bulletins that we put out, but... Margaret, they certainly are very beautiful. Beloved, the true witness that we have is that people know that we love each other. Everyone. We love one another. Verse 13 of our text says we are to bear one another in love. And, and, and if one has a complaint, we don't get on the phone. If one has a complaint against another brother, we are to forgive. Did you, did you notice that in our text? He, he goes right to forgiving. You, you have all with your brother, just forgive them. As the Lord has forgiven you of so much, we are also to forgive. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, With all humility, with all gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's the term, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We need to be eager to be in love with one another, eager to forgive one another, eager to be patient with one another. To bear with one another means sometimes turning a blind eye to each other's faults. Now listen, I'm not talking about if a person is living in blatant sin. No, we, we don't turn an eye, a blind eye to that. We pray for them. We still love them, but we pray for them. I'm just talking about preference. Somebody's not doing something the way you like it being done. We, we turn a blind eye to that. We're quick to praise people, not to condemn them. We need to be slow to criticize. We will, from time to time, find people in our church that we just don't see eye to eye with. There's a lot of people just like Phil in that first story. When that time comes, we have to make an effort to accept them where they are, how they are, show them the love of Christ, and just like Phil, lead them to the Lord. Now, does this mean we pretend that things are not wrong? No, we, we can't do that. We can't just put things under uh, the carpet. We don't pretend, we simply choose to overlook. Just because they talk different, look different, act different, doesn't mean that we can't get along with them. Or more precisely, we choose not to make a big deal about the faults that we see in others. You don't know how many times that they've chosen not to see the faults in you. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. We, we choose not to talk about it, gossip about it, nitpick about it. We're not going to mount a crusade to change them. We're eager to maintain unity. 
to build unity, we don't waste our time pointing out the many ways that those in our church fall short of our own ideals. We choose instead to treat them with patience, with kindness, with compassion, with gentleness, with love. And by all means, we do not judge one another. That's not our place. Look with me in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, 11. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? God's saying, don't judge. Judge not that you be not judged. Only God has the right to judge other people. When we are taking on the position of judge, this this verse tells us that we are taking on the position of God. I, I can only speak to myself but um, I'm, no, I'm in no position to judge anybody. I, I mean, if you have no faults, throw the first stone, but I've got plenty of them, so I'm not even looking for the rock pile. And I have a strong suspicion no one else here is either. I found this poem this week, and I have to share it with you. I love it. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, by the lights or its decor. But it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I thought was riding away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. Mm. I always said, you know, when we get to heaven, the biggest surprise are the people who are there and the people who are not there. We're going to be surprised. Years ago, maybe it's still somewhere, there used to be a store called Baskin Robbins Ice Cream in the mall. Remember that place? 32 flavors of ice cream. Now, you could go in there and they had these little plastic spoons, I mean tiny little things, and you could get a sample. I mean, after all, how am I supposed to know whether I want white winter chocolate or do I want world-class chocolate or do I want chocolate, German chocolate cake? You know, I need need to taste them. And and every fall they come out with a quarterback crunch. What does that taste like? So, you know, you get the little spoon and you sample each of them. And I was thinking about this this week. how did ice cream get started? Probably somebody got some snow and poured some cream into it, and, and, and that started ice cream, maybe. But, but then people started getting very into it. Uh, vanilla would be first. Probably then we started adding something. 
and little flavors here and there, chocolate, strawberry, butter pecan, pistachio, all those things. And somebody had some leftover Halloween candy, and we have Twix ice cream now. Um, time and invention uh, caused us to have all kinds of, of flavors of ice cream, from vanilla to some extraordinary flavors. In fact, I, I looked some up. Can you believe that there is a lobster-flavored ice cream? Goose liver. I can't say the French word. Frog raw, something like that. That's corn on the cob ice cream. Tomato ice cream. I love tomatoes, but I don't want tomato ice cream. But there's all these flavors that are out there. And not only are there flavors, vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, all that, we begin to put things in there like candy and nuts and syrup and cookies and fruit and whatever. And we have all these kinds of flavors to, to taste. Now, I'm, I'm like a lot of people. I, I tend to have a preference when I want ice cream. I want like moose track or something like that. And uh, I like vanilla. I like chocolate. But when they come up with these flavors like lobster, I, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass. Now, one day I might have the opportunity to be at a Baskin Robbins and, and their flavor of the day is lobster. And I'm going to say, well, let me get a taste. And I might say, wow, I've really been missing out. I didn't know how good that could be. I can't imagine ever saying that, but... It could be. See, because by picking and choosing my favorites, picking and choosing the right flavor, the right additives, I, I narrow myself to only certain tastes. I, I really cheat myself out of all that really I could be experiencing in ice cream. If I don't like the way something looks or smells, I, I don't even try it. I would never try goose liver ice cream. But then maybe... You get the chance and you find out you've really been missing out. When you get past the eye gate and into the mouth gate, it might really taste good. Well, all of that just speaks to us as a church. God started out with one flavor. He produced it perfectly. And then he realized that that flavor was lonely, so he created another flavor to enhance the first. As time went on, the flavors became became increasingly diversified. So did the added ingredients. Well, we're all ice cream that God created. Some are just plain vanilla. Some are, uh, are not. But even if you're just plain vanilla, in God's eyes, you're a primo deluxe vanilla. You know that? That's how he sees you. We're not just chocolate, man. We're world-class chocolate. In God's eyes. I think the main thing we need to keep in mind is that no one is of the same flavor. No one. No one. We all have different things added to us, mixed in with us. But we all started with the same source. If we turn to the chocolate and say, I'm not going to accept that flavor because uh, I, I don't like it or it rubs me the wrong way. We rob ourselves of the wonderful diversity, the unity of the body of Christ. If God wanted us all to be vanilla, we would all be vanilla. But he chose to produce varieties and flavors and, and, and different additives. It's the differences that make us unique. It's the differences that make us so wonderful. The differences of opinions, the differences of ideas, the differences in speech and in, in actions, 
in personalities and colors and, and